morning again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the uh, passage that I mentioned, Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Um, if you're visiting with us, then you'll want to know that we are now in a, about a third week, I believe, in a series that we've called Unparalleled. It is a, our study through the book of Colossians. We would love for you to uh, continue to join with us if you're able. If you've been following along with us, then uh, we find ourselves now midway through the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Um, I do think it's important uh, for you to know that you can, if you've missed these studies and you would like to go back and rehearse or back to go back and follow along, that you can find all of our sermons online. Uh, we'd love if you can listen to them or you can watch the video of our sermons in order that you can continue to stay connected to where we are as a faith community. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. 1 Timothy 2 says this, Paul writing to young Timothy says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This past weekend, we officially got a new president. And in accordance with the scriptures, I think it right for us to be in prayer for our, those who are in authorities over us. So if you wouldn't mind, if you'd please bow your heads and join me as we pray. Father, we come to you on this Sunday thankful that you are present with us. Thank you that your hand is sovereign over all things. And so this morning, Lord, we pray for President Trump. We recognize that there is so much complexity in any form of leadership. And that complexity is only grows in the role of the President of the United States. And so therefore, we pray that you will grant President Trump wisdom first and foremost. And may this wisdom flow from a place of deep humility. As the scriptures say, we are to call out for insight and to cry aloud for understanding and to look for it as silver and to search for it as hidden treasures. We pray that President Trump's life would be one that is marked by humble searching for wisdom. We also pray that the words of President Trump, the words that he uses will be tinged with unity and healing and grace and not division or condescension or marginalization. Touch his heart in such a way that his words would restore hope in the common bond of our country. We pray for his protection, for his health, and for the protection of his family. Lord, we pray that President Trump would live a life of repentance. May he learn to turn to you, confessing his sins and receiving your grace. We pray for him to deeply experience your kindness in which, you would lead to, which would lead to concrete acts of repentance in thought and in word and deed. Father, for the Trump administration, for these men and women, we pray that, it would be a, that they would remember to protect the most vulnerable in our society. Whether the vulnerable is found in found to be a refugee, an immigrant, the unborn, the family beneath the poverty line, or the religious minorities, grant them a spirit of love and mercy to those who are now in power. 
We pray that each member of the president's cabinet would carry the burden of justice and compassion for all. And for the church, your church. Lord, it is no secret that this political season has revealed deep divisions even within your church. We have chosen the way of judgmental partisanship and lust for power. In moments like these, you call us to take a posture of humility and discernment and unity and justice and reconciliation. In humility, grant us the posture that confesses our blind spots and limited understanding. The truth is we often don't know what you're up to. And to presume that we know exactly what you're doing is spiritually presumptuous. Lord, give your church a deep sense of unity. What unifies us as the church is not our political affiliations. What fundamentally unites our confession is is our confession of Christ and who he is. May this confession lead us to be people united, living according to the way of your kingdom. And Father, for our country, our country is too divided. Families have been torn apart by this past election season. Friendships have been called into question. We have too often viewed one another in reductionistic terms. We have often failed to see the fears, the pain, and the hopes of our fellow citizens. We pray for a spirit of goodwill between each other. May this goodwill start by seeing each, each other as more than who we voted for. May we seek to understand before being understood. In all of this, we remain confident in your inaugurated kingdom. Lord Jesus, in your birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, your kingdom and rule has been put into effect. We long for the day when you will fully and finally reign. And as we wait for that glorious day, may we say these words with our hearts and with our deeds, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus. We have been. You you know, he runs all throughout our services each and every Sunday. But this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Why do we talk so much about Jesus? And the reason is this. Because I think it's so easy for us to think that Jesus is the entry-level understanding to the Christian faith. And once we have certain things in our mind, once we have certain set of beliefs, once we've prayed a particular prayer, then we can move beyond Jesus into the real deep things of Christianity. But this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Because in the church in Colossae, there were people, there was teachings, there was people coming into this young church, and they were saying, yes, the Greeks were coming in and saying, yes, Jesus is good, we like Jesus, but there's a superior knowledge if you want to please God. There were Jews that were coming and saying, Jesus is good, but you have to have these certain practices in place. You have to have these religious activities that you have to have in order to really be the type of of person that pleases God. And last in our studies together, Paul told the Colossians this in verses 13 and 14. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have been brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And Paul goes on to say, I want you to know, I want you to know, Colossians, that you have been brought into the kingdom of the Son. And then he goes on to tell about what it means to be and to flesh out what it means to be in the kingdom of the Son, in the kingdom of Christ, in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus is king, in the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus is supreme, in the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus is unparalleled. He is the one unparalleled person in all of human history. His name is Jesus. This morning, we look at this unparalleled person. Paul begins to walk through with us. And I want to, by way of reminder and maybe by way of information, remind you about Jesus, this unparalleled person. Jesus is, according to Paul, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Son is God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does God look like? He looks like Jesus. What does God look like? How did God choose to reveal himself? He chose to reveal himself in Jesus, the person, in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and God has been from everlasting to everlasting. God always has. Then, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Then it only follows that Jesus has always been the image of the invisible God. There was not a time when Jesus wasn't the image of the invisible God. Jesus has always been and will always be God's image. This means that Jesus cannot be merely a creature. This means that Jesus cannot be a part of the created class. But what it means is that Jesus himself must be in a class all of his own. A, complete, a class that is completely separate from every other creature. Above every other creature. Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. What does this mean? Was, it, was Jesus a created thing? If you have friends who are of, of the Jehovah Witness faith, they will take a passage, like they will come to this particular passage, and they will tell you that what this passage is actually teaching is that Jesus was the first one born, the first one created. This is what they'll tell you. But to have this understanding is to misunderstand what Paul is actually saying. Because the firstborn doesn't mean he, he was the firstborn. What he's, because in both the Greek and the Jewish cultures, the firstborn son had the right of inheritance. Paul is saying that Jesus belongs to the right, to the dignity, to the privilege of the firstborn's inheritance. It was a, it's, a, it's a language of position that all of creation is the inheritance of Jesus. 
Jesus is prior to, distinct from, and highly exalted above every other creature. Jesus is the highest rank. Put another way, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way. In the past, God spoke to our, to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things. That Jesus is the one who has the inheritance. He is the heir of all things. And through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty in heaven. He is the heir of all things. Paul continues to say in verse 16 in Colossians, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created in him. God created all things in reference to the person and work of Jesus Christ. From all of eternity past, God knew that Jesus was his image it was God's plan that Jesus would always be his image. From all of eternity past, before creation, God knew it was always the plan for Jesus to take on human flesh. Before all of creation, it was always God's plan to reconcile the broken world back to himself. It would be through Jesus. The, Jesus created. Everything was created in reference to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It always was God's plan. All things were created in reference to him. All things have been created through him. This means that Jesus is the creating agent, the agent of creation. Jesus, the divine word, created all things. Not only is it creation made in reference to Jesus, but Jesus was the creating agent through which creation came into being. In John's gospel, the beginning of John's gospel, he says it this way. This is what, this is what John, the, the gospel writer, says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was, the God, was with God in the beginning. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the one who created all things. He was the creating agent. He is the word. And all things were created for him. All of creation was made in reference to the person and work of Christ. All things were created through Christ. He was the agent through which creation came, and it was for Christ. It was for him. All creation was made for the glorious inheritance of Jesus because it was made for him. He is the firstborn. It will be his inheritance. That means that, means that you were born for him. That means you were born for him. You were born to know him. You were born to spend eternity with him. You were born to experience him. All of creation was made for him. Everything we see was made for him because he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He was before all things 
And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the one who sustains all things. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of majesty, and he's interceding for his people. And a part of his intercession is holding all things together. He's keeping everything held together, literally holding the created order in place, ensuring that the laws of nature continue to function as they ought, as he created them. In these days, in these days, we look out and we, we look at what comes across our computer screens and we look at what comes across our TV screens and we, we say, what, what kind of chaos are we living in? What kind of confusion and confused world are we living in? And we can have a tendency to think that somehow the world is spun out of control. Some of us, we, we look at our, our new president and you, you look at the new president and you, you sit there shaking your head, scratching your head. Some of you look at the marches that happened all over the country yesterday and you sit there and you, you, you scratch your head and wonder what, what, what's going on. We look at the racial clashes in our streets. We hear of tragedy, of killing, of fighting, of people harming one another. And it feels like chaos. But it's not. But it's not. Though it feels like there is no order or control, Jesus is on his throne. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's holding all things together. And friends, he's not holding things together just by the very ends of his fingertips. This world is in the hands of the one who created it. This world is in the hands of Jesus the Christ. He has all of our times, all of our moments in his hands. He is holding all things together until he comes back for that which is his. I was reminded this week in my travels as I was flying, and, and at one particular point, I, we, were, we were coming up. We had just taken off, and I saw it was, it was like dusk, and so it was just kind of get, becoming dark, and there was... The light, you see the lights from the other planes, and they looked like there was like three or four of them all kind of coming at us. It, it, it apparently didn't happen. We, we flew just fine. But it felt like chaos. I, I was sitting there just going, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Well, they're going to hit us. They didn't because it felt like chaos, and it kind of looked like chaos, but there are people in the control tower who calmly guide the planes where they ought to go. Friends, we are not with one who isn't. We're not without one who is somehow lost the reins of the control tower of our lives or of our world. So as this morning, I want to remind you, I want to tell you a little bit about Jesus who is holding all things together for our good and for his glory. This morning, I want to tell you a little bit about Jesus because not only is he the firstborn, but he is the head. He is the head of the church. Verse 18 and he is the head of the church of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy here paul uses a metaphor for the church which is the body of christ and everybody has a head and the head is christ himself this is the imagery that paul is using he's using this imagery because what he's saying is that the 
the, 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 the controlling factor of the church is Christ. It is Jesus. He's the one who oversees all who are a part of his body, those who are, are the church. That the church receives its growth and guidance from its head, which is Christ. That the church energizes, is energized by the power of Jesus, guided by the word of Jesus, and, and, and being moved by the spirit of Jesus. That Jesus oversees all things. Just in passing, that what that means is this isn't my church, right? Like, I mean, gathering with, with pastors, and they say, well, how's your church? Well, well and, and when we all understand theologically, it's not my church. You need to understand this. Is, it's Christ's church. This happens to be the church where God has called me to pastor, that I've been entrusted as the under-shepherd. But my job is to point you to the great shepherd. And if I fail to do that, then I'm failing to fulfill my responsibilities. This isn't my church. This is his church. And we're seeking in order that we might continue to remind one another and remind ourselves of the one who is our head, the great shepherd of the sheep, who is Christ. Jesus is the head of the church, which means we sing about Jesus. It means we pray to Jesus. It means we come around his table. It means we follow after Jesus because he is our head. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. That means that of all the people who have ever been raised from the dead, Jesus' resurrection from the dead outranks them all. That's what he's saying. He's the firstborn. It's a, it's a language, again, of position. It's a, it's a language of rank, right? That all those, we, we, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You've heard stories of people who've, been, who've died on the operating table and then have been revived back to life. Of all of those resuscitations, all of those resurrections, the most significant resurrection, the most outranking resurrection is the one of Jesus Christ when he rose three days after his death. He rose and conquered the grave. He rose conquering death and hell. He rose conquering evil in our world. The, the, in order that what? That in everything he might have supremacy. Even in conquering sin and death and hell, he came in order that we might know, that the Colossians might know, that in all things, Christ has supremacy. Can I tell you a little bit more about Jesus? Not only is he the one who reigns over creation, not only is he also the one who reigns over the church, but he also is the fullness, the fullness of God. For, in God, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Paul says that God, in Jesus, God was pleased to have all all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. If we want to know about God, then it is us who have to go to Jesus and study Jesus and follow Jesus in order that we might be able to experience God. <coughs> Paul says of all the other things that, that were, were coming into the church in Colossae, that they, should, they needed a superior knowledge. Because Jesus wasn't enough, that they needed all of these religious activities that, because just Jesus wasn't enough. He says, let me be clear. All of the fullness of God is found in Christ and in Christ alone. If you want to know God, it is only through Christ. Can I tell you one more thing about Jesus? That Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Verse 20. Through him... And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you to Christ, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the reconciler of all the creation that he has made, the reconciler of all things. Jesus is the great peacemaker. We were all alienated from God. We were all enemies separated from him because of our sin, because of our brokenness. But now in Christ, by trusting in him, we can be reconciled to him. And as we discussed when we came to his table, because of Christ, then we can now be seen as holy in the sight of God. There is no other way for you to be reconciled to God. There is no other way for you to be seen holy in the sight of a holy God because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin except for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And now you are seen as holy in his sight. Now you are seen, though we have, we have sins that that make blemishes all over, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ washed over us, we now are seen as those without blemish before a holy God. You are now without accusation before him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are holy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are without blemish. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are free from accusation. If if your faith remains unmoved. If your faith remains unmoved. That we, as Christians, are those who are to have an unmovable faith. An unmovable faith. That's what he says. Verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Is it possible to not continue on in faith? Of course it is. Of course it is. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Hold on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, to whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander, their names made it into the Bible. Unfortunately so because they shipwrecked their faith. Because they shipwrecked their faith. And here, Paul is saying, continue in your faith. Established and firm, don't move. We must have unmovable faith. The Colossians have an opportunity to shipwreck their faith because some of the Gentiles were saying, this is what you need to do. You, Jesus is merely elementary. You need to move beyond him. There is no moving beyond him. Otherwise, it will shipwreck your faith. The Jews are saying, here, no, you need to do all this religious activity, and this is really where the key is. No, it'll lead to shipwrecked faith. Paul says this will shipwreck your faith. Some have shipwrecked their faith. I've been a pastor long enough now to have seen it on multiple occasions. And it's possible for you and I. 
if we're not careful, if we don't continue on, then we can shipwreck our faith. Because there is something about God. It is true that God woos us, that God holds us, that God draws us to ourselves, and it is equally true that we must continue on, that we must continue, that we must persevere. We must continue on in the things of Christ. You see, it is possible that some have experienced, the Christ, had a Christian experience. They've been involved in church and raised in church. They know all the churchy things, know all the churchy songs. They've experienced some of the benefits of being a part of church. Some have walked the aisle or prayed a prayer, and they thought themselves to be Christians because of their, their experiences, only to find out when life got really difficult, when God didn't come through like they wanted him to, when the healing didn't come like they were told the healing would come. And they didn't get their best life now. They walk away thinking as if Jesus has failed them. And they shipwreck their faith. But in reality, they had a religious experience that was actually divorced from Christ. They experienced church. They experienced religious things. They had a sincerity about even, even their attendance. But in reality, they didn't know the Jesus whom they proclaimed to worship. Because those who are his will stand firm. Those who are his will persevere. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, and I want you to hear Paul's words to us, that we must have an unmovable faith, that we must stand firm because of this Christ. I want to say this to you if I can, that an unmovable faith and a firm faith is not one without doubt. You can come and you can... Jesus was always kind to the people who doubted. He was patient with those who doubt. An unmovable faith is not one without struggle. For Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. An unmovable faith is not one that's, not, that's somehow free from depression or somehow free from death or free from pain. That's not an unmovable faith because those are realities of so many of our lives. An unmovable faith is a faith that says in the midst of the realities in full view of the realities of my life, I have an anchor for my soul. And that anchor is Christ and Christ alone. And so though I barely believe, I believe. And though I can hardly walk, I walk. And though I can hardly see, I still trust because of who Christ is, because of all of the glories of Christ Jesus. And so I walk, and so we walk together. This week I was in a coffee shop and someone showed, maybe it was last week, I can't remember, and someone says, I gotta show you this video. And so I said, okay, and then they showed me the video and I wanna show you the video, just real quick. Captain Sarah Cudd would not give up during the final moments of the grueling 12-mile foot march to achieve her expert field medical badge at Fort Dix in New Jersey. The last step in earning the badge was to complete the 12-mile trek in three hours while carrying 70 pounds of gear. With 13 minutes to go, the captain fell to her knees in exhaustion. 
but with her soldiers cheering her on, she rose to her feet and crossed the finish line. I feel like that's our journey of faith. Backpacks full of baggage and pain and difficulty and hardship, and yet we stand, and yet we walk, and we cheer one another on. That's why we need one another. That's why we gather on a Sunday from Sunday and Sunday to Sunday, because we have to cheer one another on in the journey of faith, because we don't want to waver, because we don't want to shipwreck, because we want to stand firm and strong in Christ. So I don't know where you're at in your journey. May God strengthen your knees and your legs in order that you may walk. Know that I'm cheering for you and that we cheer, are cheering for one another in our thoughts and in our prayers and in our hearts. May we stand firm with an unmovable faith. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Christ who is holding all things together. Forgive us for when we're tempted to fall into fear, thinking as if the world has fallen off its axis, thinking as if the craziness of our days and of our times are somehow out of your hands, that are out of your sight and out of your control. We confess our anxiety and fear, and Father, we again take the promises of Christ upon ourselves and recognize them to be true. We remember, because we came to your table. And Father, will you strengthen our knees? And will you help us to encourage one another on all the more as we see the day approaching of your return? We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.